Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between two humans with a pulse as opposed to computer-generated voices. It's the real-life double act of independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist, author, and erstwhile comedian Will Page, that's him. And this is what we do, laying out the inconvenient truths around how business and financial markets really work. We're now back after a summer break, so thanks to your audience for your patience and putting up with some of our excellent repeats during the hiatus, and we're putting the topic of deepfakes and bots and AI music, where we snared some really interesting exclusive interviews, off to one side to talk instead about a potential bubble, the complicated dance around the relisting of ARM, the first big tech IPO in some time now. Few IPOs come this big, and few have had to revise down their target market price so quickly. All the chips are unread while we're ready to spin the wheel and see where this UK tech darling lands. Back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, James, welcome to the podcast. It was great to meet you at the FT Weekend Festival only the past weekend. And before we get going, what we'd like to do is give you the microphone to introduce yourself to our audience. Not just your background, your achievements, what you're working on just now, but please stress how our audience can follow your work. So take it away, James. Yeah, sure. Well, it was great to, to meet you guys at, at the Weekend Festival as well. It was a it was a good use of a Saturday afternoon, I think. So my background is financial journalism. <laughs> I've been a, a writer on a lot of the main UK papers, always a, a business writer. So the Scotsman, the Daily Mail, the Sunday Times, Evening Standard, and so on. More recently, I've got into writing business books during a period of self-employment when I did lots of other um, things as well. And in the last year, I took over as chief executive of a trade body in the UK. It's called the Quoted Companies Alliance. We champion healthy public markets, and we particularly represent mid-cap, small-cap growth companies. And of course, that overlaps a little with our main topic today, I think. So you can, oh, actually, you said there's the plug. So please, uh, LinkedIn is the main platform I use, (laughs) or on Twitter, it's uh, at Mr. James Ashton. Okay, so before we go down this IPO rabbit hole here, we've got a big one on the horizon. The golden rule in our podcast is to assume that audience has no prior knowledge on the subject matter we're about to discuss. And we're about to discuss ARM. Is the next chapter going to be on legs? I mean, let's just pretend we're the dumbest kid in the classroom here and ask you to explain to us, for example, what is a chip? Uh, what makes this company a chip maker so special? And what uh, this IPO actually means? Just go back to basics for us and make sure we're all on that same 20-yard line as we get into the conversation. Sure. Okay. So chips, first of all, microchips. 
semiconductors, so many different names they go by. I do feel this industry makes things a little more difficult than it needs to be sometimes. So the chip Plus is one. the yes. So the chip is the tiny controller. It's in dozens of devices in your home, in your office, in your car. It's a sliver of silicon, a semiconducting material, as the name suggests. On the sliver of silicon are these days billions of transistors are packed on there. A transistor is the tiny switch that flicks the flow of electrons on and off to run computations to control the device, whether that be a phone, a laptop, your TV, your toothbrush, your fridge. And Mm -hmm. of course, chips have pretty much always been there for the last 60 years. Chips became a little bit more interesting through lockdown when we had the semiconductor shortage. So the reason, well, maybe why your PS5 didn't arrive for Christmas in 2020, 2021 is quite possibly because there's a $1 chip that someone somewhere didn't have the, the capacity to make. And there was a realization. And I blame um, the postman. I blame yeah. the postman. And I think there was a realization then by a lot of people outside the industry that actually chips are today's oil. Chips are this very valuable commodity that powers everything in the digital age. So I can come on to where ARM sits, sits in all that, if, if that's helpful or is there I mean superb, the, superb. the other I, thing I, I, in terms of shortages I would say so we talk about the semiconductor shortage 2021 it was a terrible year for the industry there were only 1.15 trillion chips released into into the natural world and that was a shortage year right one thing I have to say for your beautiful description and keeping things really simple is we know that the primary purpose of our podcast is to impress your friends at dinner parties. I'm sure a bunch of listeners are taking that beautiful description you just gave us and will be saying it at Friday's dinner party tomorrow evening. Um, the other thing I want is to cover off an arm, and when we hear about this arm IPO in the Today program in the morning, you read about it in the mainstream press, not just the financial press now, and you're hearing things like the UK tech darling is listing on the NASDAQ and how did we lose out and why did it go to America? Tech companies, nationalism seems like a sort of unusual bedfellows. What is behind that conversation? We have a UK tech company deciding to list in America. Is that big deal, Mayor, or is that quite symbolic of where we are in terms of public markets? I think it is a big deal. I mean, in terms of losing ARM, and we'll come on to what, what the secret source is and actually what it provides in this, in this global supply chain that's got US and, and China at, at loggerheads. But the UK has not created enough great tech champions, and that's why ARM sticks out. And that's why it is, I would say this because I've written the book Mm -hmm. on it, it is the UK's technology flagship. So we didn't lose ARM this year. ARM was taken off the stock market where it had been for 18 years. In 2016, it was bought for $32 billion by the Japanese investor SoftBank. When the time came for the company to IPO again, there was a great charm offensive by the London Stock Exchange, by the government, by successive prime ministers. We had quite a few through that period to get this company back in London. And there are various issues, reasons as to why it didn't. But one of the, one of the trends, I think, of, in capital markets is we haven't quite got the home bias that, that we used to have. So just because a company grows in the UK doesn't mean it necessarily floats in the UK when that time comes. And just because, similarly, just because you have pension funds that are the retirement savings of people in the UK, those funds are no longer necessarily invested in UK equities. So there's various decisions, there's various sort of regulatory reasons why um, That's interesting. SoftBank chose NASDAQ 
there's also a perception that uh, Nasdaq gets tech. There's a perception that valuations are better in the US uh, and a perception that, that stocks always fly over there. Those perceptions are not all true. SoftBank loves to IPO companies on the Nasdaq. That's the go-to place for, for the company founder, Masayoshi Son. And he hasn't got a great IPO record either. But this is where we are. Arm is a UK core celebra. It is going to Nasdaq. And we might maybe it'll maybe it's something to come on to later on. But we I think from that my quota companies alliance perspective, it's a it's a great shame and it's a great shame that shouldn't go to waste. We need to use that arm mm. example to make sure that we make the UK's capital markets, the public markets fit for the future and particularly for growth capital. Because if you I think if the longer a company is grounded in its own country, the the less likely it's, I'll take it the way around, the less likely a company has to go abroad for capital, the longer it puts down roots in its home country. And I think that's got to be a, a positive thing. UK is a great innovative nation. There's a lot of hard graft goes into getting things off the ground. And too often, we're not the ones that are, are capitalizing on it in our savings, in our pension funds, and so on. So that's where the, the focus needs to be. Okay. So Arm is not a new company, and I'm struggling a little bit with the notion that it's the UK's tech champion when in a nation of 65 million people, it employs about 6,000, maybe half of which are in the UK. And it's not even new to investors. But my question is, since the UK government, in a fit of openness and globalization as opposed to nationalism, allowed it to be bought back in 2016, has it been improved as a business by its new owners, or has it drifted? And has it been able to preserve under new owners quirky character as a bunch of boffins on the fins that you describe so eloquently in your book, or has it just gotten globalized and made into a similar a version of many other chip design companies that, that really are with us everywhere designing those trillions of chips? Yeah. Well, Richard, look, first of all, I'm, I'm not here to just defend ARM or big up ARM. So happy that there, there are things they've done right and things they've done wrong. Yeah. In terms of the UK's tech champion, how do you defend, how do you, sorry, define a tech champion? It hasn't got the biggest revenues in the sector. It hasn't got the greatest growth. The stat that jumped out of the F1, the uh, IPO filing in the States for me, was that the technology that ARM has produced and, and grows and develops is used by 70% of people on the globe. It's one of the most pervasive technologies that's ever been created. And you think about the UK and you think beyond tech, you think across all industries. I mean, there's more people using ARM technology than are watching the Premier League, are buying Burberry raincoats, drinking, drink, I was going to say Guinness, but drinking scotch, let's say. So in terms of the success and the pervasiveness, I think it's, I mean, and this is what I was looking for with the book. I wanted to write a giant UK corporate story, high tech, a fairly young company, and something that really resonated globally. And Arm is the one. It is in an interesting comment on the UK that this business, which might have been nurtured and protected in many other markets, was willing to be sold. I think, look, the UK has one of the characteristics of the UK capital markets is that, is that they are very open. I mean, over 20 years, a little less, when debt has been cheap and debt is not quite so cheap anymore, as some of our water companies are finding out. The UK has, <laughs> has traded either to overseas buyers or to private equity, chemicals companies, food and drink, airports, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. The, the conversation is between the shareholder, the board, and the, and the acquiring company. And I think 
It's interesting. 2016, when this deal was done, was in the days and weeks after the Brexit vote. And it was seen as a great vote of confidence in the UK. And interestingly, had Arm IPO'd in the UK next week rather than NASDAQ, it would once again have been seen as a great vote of confidence in the UK. So I think actually there are there is there is more grit in the machine now, but I think there weren't the protections in place or the no one felt we must save this for the nation, I think. So and and just to follow on to that, I mean the market's always looking to the future and discounting the past. So it's wonderful that ARM got into 70% of every device out there, every mobile phone and so forth. But it also bet big on the Internet of Things, and that maybe hasn't panned out as seamlessly as we might have uh, imagined a, a decade ago. Is there evidence that ARM can really capture the next big wave that we've had multiple podcasts on already, the AI wave, which has become the sort of must-blag topic of every dinner party for the last, well, since January and ChatGPT broke on the scene? Well, in the F1 document, they do make a good go at, uh, at, at being able to surf the AI wave. I would say, first of all, on IoT, and in the interest of, of keeping it simple, I suppose we should define that this is the way that dumb devices become smart with tiny, cheap, low-power sensors, whether that's along an oil pipeline or it's in your fridge or in your washing machine, all sorts of places. Um, that was the draw for Masayoshi Son seven years ago, as you probably know. IoT was coming. And he was very interested in all of the data that was going to be thrown off all of these devices all, all over the place. As it was, IoT, as I think with a lot of technologies, it came, but it came slower than expected. It came later than expected. What surprised me in the document they put out a couple of weeks ago is they do talk about, they put a figure on the size of the IoT market, and they say they've got something like 50 to 60% of it. And really, I mean, this, yeah, yeah, so that's so, so that's that's in there, and it's quite surprising to me because if it has to be true, it's been lawyer to death, the document, but it doesn't feel to me like that's transformed, <laughs> the, transformed the company in, in the way some had would have hoped. In terms of looking forward, so, so maybe, I don't know if you have, maybe, I don't know if you have a perspective, wrong 50 60 percent. Well, I mean, but they put a value on the market as well, be. and it's it's a pretty chunky number. I, and I just don't have it in front of me, but I don't know if that, I don't know if that rings true with you, Richard. Yeah, I mean, I guess the just one other thing to explain to listeners: the difference between ARM, which effectively licenses designs for chips or parts of designs for chips, and the companies that sell the chips themselves, which maybe explains why this world-beating company really is relatively small and having two and a half billion dollars of revenue, which isn't really growing, unlike some of the chip giants, which have tens of billions of revenue. Yeah. Do you want, actually, you were very complimentary, Will, do you want my dinner party definition of ARM before we go any further? Then I'll come back to some of those growth drivers. Give us something for the weekend, please. Well, I mean, it's not... Certainly. I mean, look, you said at the top that ARM is a, Arm is a, a chip maker, and that is the, the, the very common mistake that people uh, make about it. ARM doesn't really make anything. Oh. Um, so ARM is a, I call it a digital rule book. So in, in the technical, in the industry terms, it's an instruction set architecture. So what is that? It's a it's kind of like a, a, a digital 10 commandments. There, there, well, there's more than 10. There are several thousand instructions. These instructions, deter- <laughs> these instructions determine how 
the software controls the hardware in a device. And these instructions could be configured in, I think it's four billion ways, many different billion ways. And so it's a common language for all of these devices. Now, going back in time, 20 or 30 years, there were a number of these, and there's still a number of proprietary ones that are specific to certain companies. But ARM is by far the, the largest of its type. It's often compared with Intel, with an, uh, uh, an architecture called x86. And x86 really is very niche in comparison. Another way of looking at it is because the chips have so many layers currently, because you, you run out of space for the transistors, you've got to stack up if you're going to follow Moore's law. You need a great architect if you're building a skyscraper, and ARM provides the floor plans. As Richard says, you either buy them off the shelf mm -hmm. or you buy the kind of toolkit and you play around with it yourself and build your own, own skyscraper. But I mean, if I put it into context in terms of numbers, we've got the 70% figure. And then in its lifetime, the architecture has been used 250 billion times. Partners license it. That's kind of the ticket to get in there. And then every time the design is used in a device, ARM receives a royalty just a few cents or even a fraction of, of a few cents, but it all adds up when you're being used 30 billion times a year or a thousand times a second. So a little nudge and wink to the acting community, ARM gets residuals, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, so maybe you could plug one other knowledge gap for me just really quickly here as we get to the end of part one, which is I hear a lot about ARM and NVIDIA and the chip makers or the chip regulators. Then I hear a lot about AI, and they seem to be complementary, a gin and tonic relationship between the two. Can you just explain to our audience why this explosion in AI has put such a huge value creation on NVIDIA's stock price and has created such a furor about ARM's IPO? What's the connection between AI and, and these companies? I think AI is seen as the next big growth spurt for this industry, chips and devices that can do things that you haven't been able to do before. And I think there's, you talk about the gin and tonic, and I might almost use the, the chalk and cheese anal anal uh, analogy, because not all chips are the same. They're not all built the same. So Forex talked about a trillion chips going into the market every year. A lot of those are not particularly intelligent chips. They're analog, they're mechanical. Memory chips are fairly simple by comparison. The main area where ARM plays is what I would call the brains of the outfit, the computer processing unit. And the computer processing unit is very good at dealing with instructions one after the other in, in short order. What NVIDIA specializes in is something called a GPU, which is a graphics processing unit. Now, back in the day, the GPU, which was an NVIDIA invention, they're great at labeling things and marketing things and, and selling. That's uh, one of the their... So GPUs as the name suggests, the, they began life in, in graphics cards for games consoles. And their great skill is dealing with instructions in parallel. And that grew out of the need when you have a, a fantastic image on your computer screen, you want all the pixels to be sharp at the same time. You want the rendering to be crisp. And what they discovered, not immediately, it took quite a long time, is that the GPU, which they specialized in, was very good when you have to crunch through huge volumes of data at the same time, this sort of parallel computing burst. So NVIDIA is great in there. And this is why, since ARM was taken private seven years ago, this is why 
value is up 30-fold and, and ARM's isn't because there are different stages as mm. well. So NVIDIA is not an architecture. It makes the, we say make, but actually it, it designs the chips and largely they're manufactured by somebody else. Whereas ARM is this architecture layer, which is different. Now, Richard, you, and you said, will ARM benefit? And ARM makes a, a good shot at this in document. I mean, they say that their CPUs do run artificial intelligence. And they say that the CPU is vital to all of these AI systems quite often working in tandem with this and that. And I think there is a theory that a rising tide benefits all boats. But I think the water is not gushing over ARM in the way that it is over NVIDIA at the moment. And just maybe to wrap up this first half, can you just give us a sense of the journey you had to undertake to understand this business? I'm always fascinated by how much the markets, the press, the companies themselves can blind people with science. And you're not a, you're not a chip designer. You're not, uh, you're not an engineer. You're a, you've been a journalist and now you're working uh, in a trade body. But how long did it take you to get your head around what ARM really did as opposed to the highfalutin jargon that they like to push out about how world-changing they are and feel a way, find a way to reflect the story in a kind of as you do, reflecting all the characters that have passed through the business to, to make it what it is today? Well, I still hope I'm, I'm trying to get away with it. I mean, I think the thing is, so I was always a business journalist that wrote, that, <laughs> that wrote about, as we would call it, TMT back in the day. And so I yeah. felt I yep. knew ARM, and ARM fitted the bill of a great British corporate story. But I was never really a, a tech yep. journalist. I would never sort of obsess over the latest handset that was coming out or something. So I think what you, you go into it thinking, oh, well, I know this company, of course, no idea at all. The first thing I had to do, and I was fascinated by it, but it was a lot, there was so much to get through, was really understand the whole industry. Because I think as when you learn anything, I think you have to learn more than you want to convey to somebody else. So you know what to leave out. So, I mean, I touch on it in the book, right. the creation of the integrated circuit in the late 50s, Jack Kilby and, and Bob Noyce. And, and it was really getting to understand as much of that as possible because this industry used to be totally integrated in that if you go back to the precursor to Intel, Fairchild Semiconductor in the late 50s and early 60s where, where Bob Noyce was, was working, they did everything. They did the designs. They made their own wafers, which are, are the big shiny disks on which the, from which the chips are, are cut. They even built their own ovens in which the chips needed to be baked. And because this industry, this talks to the geopolitics, because this industry is so capital intensive, what happened is the whole thing fragmented. And now you have a, a very complicated series of monopolies or duopolies who just do one thing really well. And a, a good example of that, I think, is there are two companies. It's a duopoly, Cadence and Synopsis. And last time I looked they were worth, I think their combined market cap is 40 billion or so. All they do is produce the design packages for chip makers. This is not a mass market product, but it's got down to the point where you need absolute specialism. And so I needed to understand how you went from the sand effectively that you dig, that you dug up to, to the PS5 under the Christmas tree. And so, yeah, so it's, it's been quite a slog. And I think actually, so I needed to understand that before I even talked to the company. Because as soon as you talk to the company, Richard, you get, you, I had some help. You do get a, 
you get a lot of a lot of chat and stuff that you don't need. Well, I think we need to wrap up the first half now, but thank you for that expl- explanation, b- both of the journey and to try to situate ARM within the ecosystem of this massive global semis market. And indeed, who knew designers could get paid so much? We always thought they were underpaid and overworked and, and never appreciated. Um, we'll be back with part two, talking with James Ashton about the topic du jour in the markets, the IPO of ARM, and its history as a British battler. Back in a moment. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're back in part two with James Ashton, author of The Everything Blueprint, a history not just of the UK's tech champion arm, but a wider look at how important the global semiconductors market is and just how much it influences not just our financial futures in the country we're in right now, but also the the future of all these products that we live our lives with far too much. Now, James, I'd love to go down the rabbit hole with this ARM IPO because it kind of has all the ingredients of a soap opera. And this plucky UK startup convinced the world to, to follow its designs. It was bought by this mercurial Svengali and then disappeared from view largely because it wasn't one of the leading companies in the market. It wasn't in the index anymore. And now it's coming back. What of all of these angles of ARM is the most fascinating one for you? What is the one thing that you think, is it about the financials? Is it about the ingenuity of their engineers? Is it about the staying power of the business? What did you find the most fascinating angle when you came to write the Everything Blueprint? I think the, I mean, there's a lot to say about SoftBank, but I'll leave that aside for the moment. I think with the company, which began in 1990 as a joint venture between a home computer maker called Acorn, which was based in Cambridge and Apple Computers, you might have heard of, and also their production partner. So 33 years old. A lot of tech companies have have risen and fallen by then. So I was interested in that staying power and actually how they took a pretty simple processing design and they've applied it across industry after industry. This was initially designed for a, a, a higher grade home computer. What really kicked off for them was being in feature phones with Nokia And then you go through smartphones and into all these other areas. And I suppose the question I was thinking as I was writing is the one that the investors must be thinking at the moment. Is there more growth? Where do they go next? And the answer to that is we don't know yet because we don't know all of the 
products and chips that ARM might be relevant for until they either stand or fall on the market. Is that would that be your take on it? I think we don't. But then, I mean, this is a this company hasn't always known itself. If you go back to the first mm. SWOT analysis they were putting mm. together, this is this is about December 1990, just as Robin Saxby was agreeing to take the job as the company's first CEO. Twelve men in a barn, eight miles east of Cambridge, and uh, Robin Saxby was a, a senior turkey guy barn. From- apparently, yes. Well, they say that, but I have evidence that the turkeys were never in there. Sadly, I think the turkeys were in the barn okay. next door, uh, and I have spoken to okay. the farmer. Um, yeah. And I think going back to that SWOT analysis, they, they wrote down all the pros and all the cons and what they had. They, they didn't talk about mobile then. The nearest they got was portables because no one really knew what they were. The, the Jetsons dreamed of mobiles and so on, but you didn't really have them. You didn't really know the direction that things were going to go in. And I think some of that is still true today. And they, have, they talk about markets that are developing over, over many years. I mean, they've had the conversation mm. with shareholders about automotive for probably 20 years. And that's been yeah. a, that industry's only just getting into third gear, I think. Yeah. Wow. Let me ask, before I pass the baton back to Will, let me ask about one specific angle on ARM, because it is inescapable in the headlines today, which is the US-China angle. Now, ARM has a quarter of its business in China. It is taught as a design language in many Chinese engineering schools. It has really been embedded in the Chinese semiconductor industry. But that industry is subject to a giant geopolitical tug of war between the US, which wants to restrict China's ability to get leading edge semiconductor techniques, and China, which is eager to develop its own domestic industry. How do you assess ARM standing in between the West and China, but they're relying on China for a quarter of its sales? It's not like it could do without those sales if it was told to stand down from helping the Chinese. Well, in terms of the volume of sales it gets from there, I mean, it has got quite a lot in common with, with companies like Qualcomm, a huge volume, I don't know the percentage, it's either one third or two thirds, I can't remember what it is, but a huge amount of Intel, very big in China as well. I think what, so there's two things. I think what's different for ARM, all of these big tech companies look to do China in a different way. They decided to strike a joint venture several years ago because they could see that China was overtake, was going to be overtaking the US in terms of their number one market. That hasn't necessarily gone to plan and there's a whole, maybe too long for this conversation they don't have a very large shareholding in Arm China, which I think a lot of casual listeners might find quite surprising. There was has been all sorts of allegations and things still in court about the chap that they appointed to run this business, who had been with Arm for many years. So that's the that's one point in terms of ownership and control of what they're selling into the country. The second point I would say is this is when it's good not to be too American because they can still sell quite a lot into China. What they did, Mm. if you go back to 2019, when the chip choke was tightening, they needed to assess, because as we've talked earlier, the the issue with all of these technologies is they don't necessarily obey national borders. So they had to assess which technologies were developed in which market. As a result of that assessment, which they did, by the way, by looking at staff's timesheets, that's how high-tech it was, where who did most work on this uh, platform 
So the Neoverse platform, which is the particular flavor that they use for computer servers, they de- they determined that was born in Austin, Texas. Therefore, that's not going to be sold into the States anymore. The broad vanilla architecture, version 8, version 9, born in Cambridge, very popular with Huawei, High Silicon, and so on, still being supplied into China. Where things get really difficult is as ARM tries to bundle a lot of these things together and the nationhood is mixed and maybe the American proportion gets higher. And I think that's when it becomes a problem. But what's good for ARM is if the US clamps down on the ARM architecture, they've probably got to clamp down on Intel as well. And it doesn't feel like the US government would have the appetite to clamp down on one of their national champions. Hmm. James, keeping our audience abreast of their dinner party conversations, discussing ARM is like a glass half full. We also have to discuss SoftBank. And I wanted to come at you on this one with a sort of two-pronged approach. I want to understand its bigness and its bubbles. I mean, I was introduced to SoftBank through the front cover of The Economist, uh, an article written by Alexandra Suich-Best, friend of the show. And you don't get funds on the front cover of The Economist. You get political leaders. It's like, this is strange. So I'd love to understand just how big is this bigness of this SoftBank fund? What makes it special? Is it big enough to buy up its own stock prices should it choose to do so? And then from bigness to bubbles, can you explain to me the kind of disastrous performance they've had? I mean, I did some homework for this show, and I think only four of their listings are above water, 21 are below water. They don't exactly have a great track record. And is that part of the bigness problem? So just wrap it up for me. What is it about the bigness of this fund and the bubble troubles they seem to be experiencing? I think for a number of years, SoftBank hasn't necessarily been a market leader or a market laggard. In some instances, it just has been the market. It has invested so broadly into into so many companies, and and that has everything to do with the founder Masayoshi Son, who is something of a magpie, often regarded as a visionary. And I think yes, you're you're right, Will. I think some of those IPOs have not performed particularly well. Uber is a couple of dollars higher than it was when it IPO'd four years ago. Slack, the messaging messaging service, was taken private for about the IPO price one year on by by Salesforce. I think more recently, some of the concerns that have been about SoftBank have been about the mark-to-market, about the, the valuations of the, the private assets in, in the portfolio. I mean, one thing I, one thing I would say that's been pretty consistent is there have been concerns over SoftBank's leverage, its borrowing, over many years. If you go back to 2016, just before the ARM approach, and there was a SoftBank transaction. They sold their stake in Supercell, the Finnish computer games mm-hmm. maker. Clash of the Clans is what it would be known for. And the accompanying statement talked about disciplined capital allocation. This was the signal to the market that SoftBank was paying down its debts. A uh, couple of weeks later, $32 billion, no problem at all, sir. And, and that that's just kind of the way it rolls. And, and on those private companies that SoftBank has, which are, as with ARM, about to go public, we're hearing these terms like underwriters and book runners a lot. And I imagine these are going to be the busiest people in finance for the next two to three weeks as this thing hits its nemesis. 
Can you just explain in that beautiful, plain English language you're able to deploy in financial markets, jargon-free language, what an underwriter and a book writer does? What is their function as this IPO approaches? Well, I mean, there are 28 banks working in this transaction, Will, so I'm not sure they're all going to be the busiest people on Wall Street. I mean, the, <laughs> There could be a lot of the, lunches. Yes, absolutely. Look, the, the book runner is effectively the lead underwriter. So the book runner would be leading the sale yeah. of the equities and, and the rest of the underwriters are in a, a syndicate to kind of protect the price, but also they're out there to drum up interest. So you see this on occasion. I mean, the investment bankers aren't that busy right now, and they hope that this transaction, as I said in a column recently, this transaction for Wall Street doesn't particularly need to smash the lights out. It just needs to put the lights back on for all these bankers who haven't had much to do recently. But uh, yeah, so they're there to, they're there to drum up the interest. Is it I got a cake and I want to take the cake public? And what these people are doing is essentially going around to big institutions and saying, would you like to pre-order a large slice of this cake to create the scarcity to hold the price up? Is that like dumbest kid in the classroom description I can come up with? Is that close to what they're doing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there is a, there's a finite amount of cake. And yeah, I think that's it. I think they're also saying, look, this is pretty tasty. Get a slice while you can at this price. I was going to say, look, they are they are only selling in the order of ten percent of this of this cake, so it's mm. quite a sliver. And that's where I was coming to next because SoftBank will still own ninety percent, but it's shown its hand already and said, "Look, we're we were buyers before we bought the whole company, and now we're starting to sell." Obviously, if they came to try to sell the whole thing at once, that would be catastrophic because you probably couldn't absorb that much onto the markets that quickly, but. Doesn't everyone know that since SoftBank was selling some, that means they're likely to be selling more and more? So wouldn't that prompt investors just to wait because they know the supply will increase, which tends not to be very good for the price? Well, I suppose that's where the advisors come in and to manage that. This is all going very well. How on earth do I get my hands on, on, a, on some more arm shares? And that's when SoftBank obliges. I think the way the company is being viewed I mean, the history of SoftBank is really goes back to one incredible hit. And this was the SoftBank investment in Alibaba. I think it was about 2000. It was just before this podcast about bubbles and troubles and just before the bust. And actually, SoftBank also invested in Webvan around that time, which didn't come back. But Alibaba came back incredibly strongly. And ever since, it has really been the piggy bank for Massasson, for SoftBank, whenever they've needed to pay down some debts or find some funds for an acquisition, Alibaba has has done very nicely. Alibaba is almost sold down now, sold out. So Arm is the new Alibaba, yeah. if this goes well, I think. But as a fund manager, I would know that the 10% they're offering now is likely to be matched or exceeded, tripled, quadrupled, quintupled in the next tranches that SoftBank is going to sell. So doesn't that give people some caution, especially Psychology. when a company has been private for a very long time, you don't know necessarily how it's going to behave as a public company where it has to come to the market every 90 days and report consistent results. Yeah, I think so. I mean, with any structure like that, when you have any, it's just like when private equity takes a takes a company to market and SoftBank is very private equity like, so you will always have that overhang. And I'm sure there'll be, there'll be a, a lockup when it's floated. We will not sell any more shares for X days. But I think they hope that the combination of the of performance and scarcity value 
means that these these shares keep tracking up and you can keep selling a few to match demand. James, on the show, we like to close out with our favourite segment we call Smoke Signals. I mean, the origins of Bubble Troubles of podcast was inspired by the Who song, Don't Get Fooled Again. Why is it we seem to, like the boy who cried wolf, find ourselves back in Bubble Troubles and then we always promise that'll be the last time that goes belly up. So we like to ask our guests for smoke signals, just a handful or one or two observations of words, expressions, terminology, jargon. It makes you just get squeaky bum moments, like this room doesn't actually know what it's discussing or this journalist doesn't actually know what they're covering. Given we've got this RMIPO close on the horizon now, what are the smoke signals you can give our audience just so they can feel comfortable that they're following the right story as we hit the nemesis of this big financial event? Yeah, I mean, I was looking at what to say for the smoke signals. And I think there's, I'm not sure if this is fresh enough, but in terms of researching the book, it has been fascinating over many years uh, what Masayoshi Son has said about ARM. And I think this is the man with a 300-year vision of course. And I went back to the (laughs) SoftBank's 2017 annual report, which I hope isn't too historic for you. So in that report, Son wrote that he'd been longing to get, I'd been longing to get my hands on this hidden gem of the technology industry for over 10 years. Quote, one day when I look back on my long life as an entrepreneur, I believe that ARM will stand out as the most important acquisition and investment I've ever made, predicting that its chips would one day feature in, quote, running shoes, glasses, and even milk containers. And and I just, I just think it, it's I think this is feels like a smoke signal to me. He was writing this love letter in 2017. SoftBank has owned Arm for not 300 years, not 100 years, not even 10 years. It's owned it for seven years, and actually, it's been trying to sell it or transact it or IPO it for four of those seven years. So that's a signal to me. That's maybe one of our best smoke signals to date. James, reflecting on the conversation, one, I just want to credit you with giving really clear, plain English descriptions of what's going on here. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our audience have learned a lot. We owe you a debt of gratitude for that. But two, if I can just close out by picking up on an earlier remark you made in part one, where we talked about this UK tech darling listing on the NASDAQ in the United States. And I, I, I thought your answer was going to be, meh, who cares where it lists? It's the performance that matters. You gave quite a strong rebuttal saying it does matter. This is a UK story, and the UK capital is going to be deployed, I guess, overseas. It made me think about a country which invests in its higher education, only to see its brightest and best students leave its country and deploy their services elsewhere. And I just wondered whether there's a scenario here where tech is leaving the bay. You can see it if you look at U-Haul prices, my favorite metric, the cost of moving your home from California to Texas is five times more than going from Texas to California. Tech is leaving the United States. You're seeing Croatia as a central hub for engineering capacity, Estonia, Sweden, where you do a lot of work. But maybe as tech leaves the United States, the listing returns back to the United States. We have this ships passing each other in the night effect where tech can travel beyond its borders, but America wins back the listings. Would that be a fair comment to close out on? Yeah, it could do that. But I think actually the things like the arms loss as we started at the beginning talking about up to to London, I think so many stock exchanges, capital markets, national governments are thinking, well, what is the value of having a strong capital market? How can we make sure that these markets are fit for the future? It's certainly a huge focus in 
in London, a focus of this government, a focus of the the Labour opposition, look at the rules and look at how you channel. The irony, and you talk about where the tech is based and and where they might list, Will, the irony of, of we have this huge research base, great innovative country. We also have one of the biggest pension fund and asset management industries in the world, based in London, based in Edinburgh. And actually, I think we want to kind of reconnect them a little bit. We don't want, I don't want my pension fund building up a world-beating company so that it can employ, that's based thousands and thousands of miles away, so it can employ someone else's grandchildren. I think it's about reinvesting back into the country and connecting the, the capital with the ideas. It's a deep thought. James Ashton, a great conversation, great times ahead. I feel like I've, got, I've buckled up for what's about to happen on financial markets. So I want to thank you for coming on Bubble Trouble. Thank my co-host, Richard Kramer, and the appreciation of preparing us for an IPO to come. Thank you so much, James Ashton. Thank you. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nuzum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, for my co-host, Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.